Today we have a real treat. We will be looking at substance abuse from the other side. I have Rodrigo Garcia with me. Rigo and his wife Claudia are the founders of Parkdale Center in Indiana. Parkdale is a recovery center for professionals and therefore healthcare professionals are welcome there. And the focus there is not only on a healthy recovery, but career restoration as well. I love talking to Rigo, his passion for what he does and his belief that restoration is possible is really inspiring. There will definitely be more than one interview with Rigo because I think we could probably talk all day. But today's interview will focus on why Rigo and Claudia started the Parkdale Recovery Center and the approach and philosophy they take to substance abuse and diversion minimization in the healthcare facility. So welcome, Rigo. Thank you, Terry, so much for having me. It's actually a pleasure uh, to be here. I've been following your work and your information for quite a long time, and it's, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you on this. Thank you. Well, thank you. I'm excited about today. So your background is inspiring, and it is one of the main reasons, I imagine, that you are so passionate about what you do. And while we don't want that to be the focus, I think your story really is the basis for everything else you do. And therefore, it is important to share. So please share a little bit with us today on that. Absolutely. And I, and I have to start off by saying I think a good place to start with is that when I was a, a very young nurse back in the middle 90, 1990s or so, um, uh, it's sad for me to even say this at this point, but I was on the other side of the spectrum where, you know, addiction was a moral compass problem and it was a poor choice. And, and uh, there were certain, certainly some cases with patients and with co-workers that had uh, diverted from the hospital where I took that approach where, you know, he gets everything that he deserves and you know, he should know better. And they're tasked with protecting the public and how dare they do this. And, and that was my early 20s um, perspective on the situation. And then by, by process of uh, the universe and karma or whatever you want to call it, I got a, a firsthand view of what that looked like on the other side of things. I started off in the, um, in the nursing field, in the emergency room. And I went to the, a little place in Gary, Indiana, right in the middle of, um, you know, it was like ground zero at the time in the mid 90s. It was a high trauma, high acuity. It was a very dangerous place to, to work and to, to, to live for, for that matter. But it was a great experience. And then I went to the ICU for a little bit after that. Um, in the late 1990s, I decided uh, maybe I go to anesthesia school and see what that's all about. So I got accepted into the uh, Northwestern Evanston uh, School of Anesthesia. Uh, and I finished my residency and I've been doing uh, anesthesia since 2004 as a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Uh, something happened really quickly after I graduated and uh, my, my 11 year story condensed down to a couple minutes. It goes like this. Uh, I got a prescription after I broke my leg playing baseball in a baseball game. It was the first prescription for an opioid that I ever had. And uh, I noticed two things when I was on that, that medication. First thing is that it didn't do anything for the pain. The pain still hurt tremendously. I was, uh, and I'm like, this is this is not even working. What's the big deal about these medications? So I would take a couple extra. Now, keep in mind, I'm the expert in pain management. I do anesthesia for a living. I know how to handle this, and it's a prescription. It's a prescription. I mean, nothing's going to happen to me. Uh, so I noticed that. The other thing that I noticed was was almost kind of. It was it was subtle that I didn't expect it to happen, but it was it was very profound when it happened. Was that everything in my head seemed to get better? I'm not an anxious person, but I was less anxious. I don't suffer from depression, but I was less depressed. It was like everything around me felt better. Like um, 
this is normal? Is this how people normally feel? It wasn't like this euphoria where I was you know, inebriated. It was more like a clarity that I had never had before. And that became something that I started to chase. It was that feeling of normalcy and clarity and mental health stability that I'd never experienced before. So I got a couple more prescriptions from my friends uh, that were treating me and um, then those ran out. And when they ran out, I was going through this incredibly horrible withdrawal. And um, I had this moment of um, uh, judgment lapse, we'll call it that, uh, one day going into the weekend. And I knew the withdrawal over the weekend was going to be absolutely horrible. And uh, I was out of prescriptions and I was you know, six months post-op already. And what do I do? And that's when that first waste medication at the end of the day uh, was taken for self-use and went right under my tongue. Uh, just to kind of uh, dispel any kind of withdrawal symptoms or uncomfortable feeling that I was going to have. And it worked instantly. It worked immediately. Well, that became the downward spiral um, from diverting the waste medication from the hospital. Um, and, and it wasn't even so much to support this clarity that I had. It was all in the interest of not going through withdrawal. So avoiding the withdrawal. And that became the, the chase is just feeling good, like no withdrawal symptoms. So uh, I began diverting the waste medication from the hospital. My wife, who um, is Claudia, as you mentioned, she was working in the surgery department with me and had absolutely no idea. She knew something was, was amiss. Um, I was getting more depressed now at this point. I was getting more anxious. Uh, I was getting more stressed out. I was getting more disconnected from the family, but she didn't quite know. I mean, I met the profile of the exact opposite characteristics of what you would expect from somebody who was impaired. You know, I was successful. I was doing anesthesia. I was uh, getting awards. I was getting accolades at work for being you know, a top provider. And it just didn't make sense. And it didn't even cross the radar of a lot of people until the very end. So, uh, of course, as, as these things more times than that happened, everything came crashing and burning. And um, there was no way to wiggle off the hook um, as I had done two or three times before. And I ended up in a treatment center. Uh, I ended up in a treatment center that specialized in healthcare professionals. And that really became the conduit for what we're doing now today. It was um, the most eye-opening experience that I've ever had in my life. It was the most advanced personal growth moment segment of time that I've ever had in my life, where I just really learned a lot about myself, a lot about the industry, a lot about addiction and mental health in particular. And uh, it was from that moment on that Claudia and I decided we wanted to dedicate our lives to this patient population um, for a lot of reasons, because I went through it, number one, I realized how hard it was to get help. And um, it, was, it was daunting, it was a daunting task to get help for somebody who was in the healthcare profession. Uh, and we wanted to make sure that we can impact the world and the community in our little neighborhood and provide those kind of services. And then when I went into the treatment center, there were 30 other healthcare professionals. And oh. I remember thinking, how is nobody talking about this? Why is this not like top of the conversation in every hospital? Um, but there were so many people. And by the time I left, there were another 30 people that had come into the program as well. So that's the space that we work in now. We work in the um, mental health addiction treatment space, specializing in uh, all professionals, but really hyper-focusing on the uh, healthcare professionals. Most of them have a dual diagnosis of mental health and substance use disorder. And those that have a substance use disorder, most of them divert from the hospital. So it's really kind of evolved into this, this big program where we can help the hospital system as well. And also the patients and their families and the healthcare providers that need the help. 
That's great. Yeah, we'll talk about the hospital systems in a minute. A couple of things. You're right. Why isn't it top of mind discussion at facilities? Because it people just either ignore it, don't think they have a problem, sweep it under the carpet, but they're forgetting there are people behind this problem that need help. And so we need to make it top of mind so that they know they're not alone. The other thing I don't recall hearing about your story when I heard it originally is that you were on the other side of the spectrum thinking, oh, these yeah. people, how can they do that? And I find that really interesting because I, I'm, I'm not on that spectrum of how could they do it, but I am definitely, that would never happen to me. I've had an opioid, didn't feel anything. This would never happen to me. Sure. Um, and so I think it's interesting that you went from that one side where you were pretty adamant to you became you know, one of those victims to, to the opioids. So I find that kind of fascinating. We all need to be careful what we say we're never going to do, right? Well, you know, I grew up in the mid 80s when it was, um, you know, Nancy Reagan and the Just Say No campaign. And, you know, don't, if you don't want to become an addict, just don't start using. And so I was raised like that. I raised my kids like that. If you don't want to get in trouble, just don't start doing it. And, you yeah. know, how foolish is that now in, in retrospect, right. in hindsight, when we see the pathology and the disease process behind the mental health and the substance use disorder. But uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely a huge part of my story, which really played into the decision that I had to make at the time when I realized that I was physically dependent on the medication. I, I fell back on everything that I was born and raised and, and thought, my, my, my thought process, my moral compass, all of those things. And it was, you're not an addict, you have a job. You don't have a problem. You're you're successful, and uh, you're contributing to society, and uh, you know you're dressing nice, and you're going to work, and you have a beautiful family. That doesn't fit the profile. So keep doing what you're doing. You're going to be okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Definitely. All right. So let's talk about the facilities. You um, you work with healthcare facilities in a number of capacities, and working with those facilities, you teach four pillars to a successful di diversion program. And for what it's worth, I think they're spot on. So if you could share those pillars with us, so we've got some insight there. Absolutely, and the way that that kind of came to be is we've treated about 1,300 healthcare professionals and they would all tell their very unique stories about how they diverted from the hospital. So we started gathering all of this information on uh, how it was being done. It took about two weeks, uh, two, two to three weeks of conversation with uh, the new patients where I started thinking, I went from, yeah, okay, I did that, or I could see how that would be done. And very quickly it went like, how would you even think about doing that and diverting from the hospital? It, it Today, the, the way that diversion is being happened in the hospital, something I would never even have imagined uh, doing you know, 11 years ago. So we got all this information and we would start to try to help either mitigate it at the front end when they caught them with the hospitals or re-enter them on the back end when they're trying to get a job again. So we started uh, the program where we go into hospitals now. And we said, listen, this is not just a, a, a one one thing. You fix one thing and everything gets better. You fix the re-entry, everything gets better. You get better camera systems and everything gets better. It's an entire program. So we broke this down into four pillars of uh, diversion prevention for hospital systems, and then we go and teach them how to do it. Pillar number one is prevention and education. How do you teach your employees about mental health and the occupational risk hazards of diversion, anxiety, depression, uh, mental health, fitness for duty? How do you teach your employees? You do it at uh, new hires, continuing uh, annual competencies. And then this is also an imperative time 
to let all of the employees know what your culture of the hospital is going to be. Are you going to be that kind of facility that says, if you need help, raise your hand, come over here, we're going to help you? Or are you going to be that, don't you dare do it because we're going to come after you and find you and make an example out of you? Whatever it is that you subscribe to, that's the area where you teach your employees of what they can expect. Uh, pillar number two is early identification. How are you going to find it? What we find is most hospitals spend the most amount of time and money on pillar number two. They get the fancy camera systems and they get the analytic reports and, and data from the Pixis or the automatic dispensing machines. Uh, they hire security guards. This is the physical stuff that's going to catch it. Um, and then appropriate, uh, number three is going to be appropriate intervention. What are you going to do when you catch it? What are your state, local, federal reporting requirements as an institution? Are you going to send them to treatment? What kind of treatment? What kind of treatment provider are you going to send them to? Are they in-network or are they out-network? How are you going to get them there? How are you going to do the drug screen test? What are you going to include in that drug screen test? Uh, so there's a lot of things of what do you do when you catch them? How do you do with successful interventions? I've seen more hospitals fall short at that part. They have the data, they have the information, they call them in for the intervention, and that's when it goes south. Sometimes it's as simple as uh, the employee says, I'm not gonna be part of this, I'm out of here. They get up and they walk out. What does the hospital do then? Um, they've just let an impaired professional go to another job down the hospital and, and um, completely un unwatched. And then the fourth part is the professional reentry. How do you hire somebody that was a great employee of yours that fell victim to mental health or substance use disorder? You caught them, they asked for help, whatever it may be, and you wanna bring them back to your facility. How do you do that? Or in my case, I've been, uh, I've been 11 years removed since those initial uh, diversions from my story. How would you hire me at your facility? Um, on paper, you're gonna see some blemishes from way back then. But uh, I have a proven sobriety track record for you know quite some time. How would you hire me safely back into your facility or people like me? So it's an, a whole program with the whole goal to do one thing, and that's change the culture of the hospital. That's great. That all falls into kind of what I call the comprehensive drug diversion prevention and monitoring program. I mean, it's got to be comprehensive. Absolutely. That's cool. Okay. Do you have a couple of case studies that you can share with us and how the Parkdale Center helped somebody or helped a facility? Yeah, absolutely. You know, part of the, when we go into the hospital systems and part of what we do is we uh, send out surveys. So we send out surveys to uh, a select amount of employees and administration and uh, patient facing employees as well. So everybody gets, they, they know we're coming. So it's like the joint commission, everybody scatters when we're walking through the doors. Uh, but once we get there and we do you know kind of a morning presentation, grand round style, and we tell them what our mission and our vision is and what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, probably the most um, tangible way that we've helped somebody directly related to the program is that we go in there and we do this program and we pull people aside and we interview and we talk to them. We tell them about their options. By the time we leave the facility, this one case I'm, I'm talking about in particular, we had two people calling us. We weren't even in the parking lot and we had two people calling us. The first person said, I have a coworker that I'm sure is impaired. You just laid out this beautiful plan on how you can help them and they're not going to go to jail and they're not going to get in trouble, um, but they need help. So I'd like to get you in contact with them. And we said, fine, got all the information. The second call we got was from that employee. Oh. Sells. 
And they said, I need help. And I'm going through the, I said, what's your name again? And I'm like, and it was the same person. So just giving them permission, that's the most, that was the quickest, most tangible way. And and this happens all the time. As soon as you give them permission to ask for help, because I can tell you that the, the people that are struggling with the mental health or the substance use disorder, they're, they're begging for somebody to throw them a life raft or a life preserver so they can cling on to it. Uh, very unlikely they're going to ask for help themselves. But if you give them permission to ask for help in a safe environment with a strategic plan on how to re-answer them, they'll ask for help. So that's probably the most tangible way that um, we've seen this happen. So after we get into the hospitals and we work into the hospital, some of the things that we set up with that pillar number two and pillar number three are, this is how you catch it. When you catch it, send them to... Give us a call and we'll bring them into the treatment program. So how we've helped them on that treatment center side, as soon as they get to us, we have them self-report to their state monitoring program. We help them maybe sometimes resign their position. So it's a resignation instead of a termination. Uh, We try to keep that license and that work record clean as possible right from the beginning. So that doesn't have a lot of uh, impact on them right away. They don't understand the gravity of that. But once they get through the program and they start monitoring and they're ready to re-enter the field, we already took care of what that looks like at the front end. And now it's time to reap those benefits because the work history is clean. Their license is uh, maybe sometimes a probation, but it's something that they can work with. So being involved early on from the treatment side to take care of all of those licensing issues is absolutely imperative to make sure we can get them back to work at some point if they uh, meet the requirements to re-enter. Some people, the recommendation is, probably should think of another field or a different profession. And we have those conversations with people as well. Okay. okay. And what is the, is there kind of a theme for people that get caught and end up in your program? Do they feel relief? Do they, is it like the best worst day of their life? Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, um, it was very interesting because it started off as a hunch, Terry. When I went into the treatment center, I had one emotion that was taking control of everything else. And it was a surprising emotion to me. Now, I just got caught at the facility. I got escorted off the grounds. My my wife wanted to divorce me. The kids didn't like me. I was losing weight and I was getting uh, going through a horrible withdrawal. I had a very expensive treatment center that I didn't even know how I was going to pay for. And they asked me the same question that I ask every single patient that comes through there hey, the DA is investigating you and you're going to have some criminal charges and you may lose your license and your wife wants to divorce you. You're sitting in a treatment center of no places in the entire country you could have picked. You're in Indiana. Uh, How are you feeling about that? How does that make you feel? I would say greater than 95% of them say the same thing like I did. Relief. I would rather be here in that situation than one more day struggling with a diversion or an addiction or a substance use disorder or mental health, uh, trying to survive on my own. I'm here. I'm safe. I'm going to get help. That's all I need. Every, almost every one of them, Terry, they say, I feel relief. It's finally over. Somebody rescued me. And it's not that kind of animosity. So here's the part two of that. Somebody called you. Hey, how do you feel about your coworker that just turned you in? How do you feel about, like in my case, your wife who just finally put the pieces together and turned you in? How do you feel about that? And it's not what you would think. I'm so mad at them. And why did they snitch on me? It's they saved my life. I can't thank them enough. They saved my life. And those are the two kind of overall feelings. They're very grateful for whoever it was that caught them and turned them in. And they're very grateful that they don't have to live that life anymore. And that's why we need to get better at what we do. No doubt. 
can get them there. All right. Thank you very much, Rigo, for your time today. And I'm sure that we will talk again very soon. I'm looking forward to it, Terry. Thank you so much.